Hey everybody, this is Keach Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and I have with me today in the band cave, Ken Love. How's it going, Ken? Hey, how are you? Um, Ken Love is a mastering engineer. Now, for people that don't know what that is, I mean, it sounds like, oh, well, they mix the record or they they, they turn the knobs when someone's recording, but uh, actually, this is actually, can you explain to us a little bit about what mastering is? Yeah, I would explain mastering as the last creative step that you make in music production before you're committed to a production master. I see. So if you think about, you know, if you wanted to make an, an analogy to photography, I don't take the picture, but I'm more like the guy who gets in with Photoshop and tweaks the picture, adjusts the, the contrast and gets the, gets the, the dynamics of the picture looking as good as they can so that when it hits a press, then it's going to look good in the magazine. I see. So, yeah. I mean, if you, the, uh, a print in a magazine is far more limited than the way that image looks in the back of your camera. And so you need, you know, while I didn't compose the shot and I didn't select the moment, I'm the guy that gets it ready to to look as good as it possibly for release can. For, for actual release, release to for the actual public. Actual release. Yeah. And what I think is really cool about mastering that that, we're, that I would love to talk to you about is all the hidden things that are in there. Like you mentioned Photoshop and stuff like that. So imagine if uh, you had a, a print, a, a picture that someone took, and they were about to put it in a magazine, but you were you had the ability to hide all this really kind of cool information in the picture somewhere that if only you knew where to look. It would be there. You would be able to read it. And that's what mastering also does, right? Some of that does actually happen in the process. I mean, there are are now more and more sophisticated tools that let you go in and actually select individual instruments and remove them or change their sound, even even though you're committed to a mix. I mean, there are digital tools that now let you unmix the record and there oh, and it's wow. it's not it's nothing as good as working from the individual tracks on the on the mix standpoint but they can save a bad mix yeah you know and in a way of of actually going in and focusing on in on on the splashes of a symbol or something like that you can absolutely go in there and control the level of those things almost as if you had the full mix tracks available to you wow that's incredible yeah now one of the first questions um why is mastering so important like why what 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 if you didn't master a record and someone recorded it in pro tools and that kind of thing and then they sent it to the label and the label said okay let's put it out on the radio what would the sound difference be to the layman's ears uh, with the, with the, of course, it wouldn't have the metadata and things like that on there, which we're going to talk about in a little bit about the ISRC codes and all that, getting credit for having written the song and that kind of thing. But the sounds and the levels, the layers, the fidelity of it. Well, well, for one thing, uh, if you were listening to an album playlist, you know, it is the job of the mastering engineer to make sure that the individual songs relate to one another at least in terms of their high and low content and in terms of their average level i mean if you're ever in a car and you're having to reach over to adjust the volume knob every time from one song to from another one song right. to the other or just wishing that the low end was a little bit healthier on this one song well that means that there was probably a little bit more mastering that could uh-huh. have been done yeah okay yeah so so that's the very basics but on top of that i mean 
I started out as a disc cutter in, you know, cutting lacquer discs that were used to press records. Uh In a record pressing plant. In a record pressing plant. But my job was actually a mastering job in a mastering studio. I mean, mastering engineers started out as disc mastering engineers. That's one thing I wanted to talk about is how it's changed over the analog uh, vinyl days to now. All right. So there, there are limitations to every medium. And... And your mix is not cognizant of what what each medium needs in terms in order to sound the best. I mean, people really like loud CDs, but if you relate it to like Apple Music or something like that, Apple Music gives a tremendous amount of dynamic range in terms of their standard levels. Is that right? And yes, absolutely. In fact, maybe more than people are used to and From so like, as, as opposed to like spotify or uh okay Google so or something. so the the hot new term for the last three to five years has been luffs which is loudness units relative to full scale oh. l-u-f-s and every digital distribution platform has sort of their benchmark loudness level okay it's measured in luffs and spotify is uh their average level is around minus 14 below uh-huh. full scale. Apple's is like minus 16. Uh, if you go to something like um, uh, SoundCloud, they're up around minus 11. By comparison, uh, most CDs are mastered to like minus 8s. And so that's a good 6 to 8 dB louder than where Apple would really like your music to be sitting. I see, yeah. And so if one of the things that will be done with and out of your control if your mastering engineer doesn't take care of it is if you just submit your CD master to Apple and say, put it out there, they're going to take a look at it and say, okay, this is way too loud for our platform, and they'll just turn it down. And turn it down, meaning like they won't. They'll they'll just turn no, they, no, the not refuse. Yeah. They'll 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 reduce the level by six to eight dB in order to conform to their benchmark loudness. Which means you would. Uh, which means that you've got lose all the, your dynamics. Well, you, not so much. I mean, it has all the dynamics that it had before, but you'll have seven and eight dB of unused headroom. Ah, in, all right. In in the in the audio, so. Uh, I think that the Apple standard is, you know, per, my personal feeling is that the Apple standard is is probably, you know, way too low. And in fact, Apple came back and revised that, saying that they recognize that compression and loudness are also creative decisions that are happening in the mastering process, in the mixing process. And the fact of the matter is, is they're they're you know, baseline level was lower than most people's mixes unmastered. Wow. So, you know, it was, you know, I think that it has probably more to do with some other things that Apple is involved in, you know, in terms of like getting their, um, that, that audio to, um, to conform to more and more formats for them that they control. Now, now back in the day, talking about vinyl and things like that i learned i read somewhere that when when the label or the producer was deciding on what song to put in what order on a record there was always a decision made because the the first 
the outside of the record, the outside of the disc sounded better because of the speed it was going through the needle that's exactly and then as it gets thinner and thinner into the middle less diameter you it's not raking across the things as well the rotational speed of the record doesn't change at all from the time you drop the needle Mm -hmm. until the time it gets picked up at the inside but the size does the 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 speed of the groove underneath the playback stylus gets slower and slower which also means that if you if you think about a a cymbal crash happening on the outside of the record, those high-frequency waves get spread out right. over a greater distance. They get more grooves. They get they get a longer groove to, to, to happen in, and then by the time you get to the inside of the record, you know, it's almost half as yeah. half the speed as the, of the outside. And at that point, the, the uh, high-frequency content will be sort of smashed together to just sort of fit in the same amount of time and in fact it can get to be so small that the playback stylus can't actually accurately trace it right so would that be a mastering engineer's duty to kind of like say well you know we we have to which songs are less important to you which songs do you want to put in the middle um i would not Mm. say that so much i think that you know the back in the day the A and R department, which is in control of the creative decisions of the record, do they under- have that knowledge? Do they know that? Well, that- they they the the A and R departments did understand that about records. Okay, and so you know all the way through the seventies and the eighties, you know the A and R department would absolutely control, you know what the order of the songs were and be thinking about okay you know this is an lp you know there was the four corners theory you put your best song on the at the beginning and the end of the a side and the next ones on the beginning and the end of the b side and the song you didn't care about was you know the fourth song on the b side right, and, yeah and you know, hopefully get lost and so you know all of those audio concerns were understood by the people who controlled the order of the songs on the record you know that is not so much the case now i mean people you know with the resurgence of vinyl a lot of the you know held knowledge of you know what makes a good sounding record had to be has to be rediscovered by the people that are making records now so in other words the newer vinyl that may be out the inside may sound better because of i wouldn't say that no. no No, because the the geometry hasn't changed. The physics are the same. The physics are the same. There's nothing you can do to there, make that well, inside track sound better. No, you really. The other thing that sort of happens, and you know, I came to understand after vinyl came back was, you know, the the medium of vinyl almost acts as another limiter on the audio, and you you can use that effect to you know really drive the energy of the record on some levels but also um it 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 affects the way the the instruments translate in in their fidelity and so you know i had uh you know one blues record that i was working on and you know i went into the cutting session with that and we cut it at one level and the drums were feeling like they were kind of flattening it out flattening out a bit and wasn't quite as exciting as the as the master was and so we backed it down 
a half a db and it's like wow that got you know a little more lively and then we said okay maybe if we go down another half db you know the the track will bloom some more and then it started to lose its soul so there was sort of this moment you know this this sweet spot in the middle where you you know would would be picking the level that 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 audio hits the disc in order to get the most translation of the energy you know through it and and it it just like you would lean into a into a a compressor on a mix bus now i years ago i took an online course a mastering course Mm -hmm. (coughs) excuse me i took a mastering course on mastering in logic uh logic pro how to how to master in logic pro and i learned so many things that i had not known and i was i was just kind of interested in that um and like they, he mentioned things like macro dynamics and micro dynamics the difference between the two and and how you would um sort of through the song make these little creative decisions like maybe when the chorus comes in it needs to kind of raise a little bit and then you know these little macro things like you know just a little bit here and a little you know when the vocal comes in um do you do you believe in a lot of that do you, does that oh, make absolutely. sense to you because that just totally lost me you know a- absolutely so uh, just a case in point we've been working on the Lone Star 10 to 1 compilation. Yeah, our new record. You're, and so excited to hear it when it's done. All right. So so there's that song, Amazed. Right. Which and, you, uh, uh, I'm sorry, but I wanted to say you mastered the original Lonely Grill record for us back in 99. And so you were just going back and remixing, re-engineering uh, it again? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a different mix. And, you know, so it was totally new material, but... You know, I'll tell you that that this time I had far more control over it than I did the first time around. Okay. And in some ways, that's the advancement of the technology. In some ways, it's it's just the the nature of the mix is, you know, a different engineer mixed the original Lonely Grail record yeah. than mixed these, these re-releases. So, I mean, you, you hit that fourth song, Amazed, and it, it, it's, the, it's the fourth cut on the record. There's three hard-hitting singles straight in front of it and amazed starts out soft right and it gets huge at the end and as you're as you're playing through it's just like in terms of macro dynamics you absolutely have to lift the beginning of that song so that it doesn't get lost yeah you know under the road noise while you're driving down the I highway gotcha. so it's or, like nothing's going on and yeah, all of a sudden or, or it's just it. like you know the that that in order for that vocal to feel present and strong at the beginning i mean that beginning of that song the first half of that song had to be lifted a couple dbs right and then and then gradually figure out places to sort of sneak the level down as the song is playing so that it doesn't sound like you're turning it down. I see, yeah, right. And so that it still has apparent musical dynamics, but the musical dynamics aren't as wide as the way it was originally recorded. Yeah. And in terms of microdynamics, that, to me, the way I understand that is just a, a reflection of, of the dynamic range of the audio in the track. Yeah. And so if, you know, I, I crank up the beginning of the song a couple of dBs and I'm sneaking it down, but in order for the back of the song to sound huge, in some ways is a is a problem of how do I use compression so that it it remains loud, 
but still has apparent snappiness in all of these transient yeah. things like drums and and the bass and and the vocal doesn't sound too pinched and and all of that is related to how I address the microdynamics with compressors and limiters so you know macrodynamics is sort of uh, you know adjusting the flow of the of the musical dynamics of the record like you right. would with a fader right and the microdynamics is the sort of stuff that you would handle with uh you know tools that you know have kind of an automatic nature to them yeah so the compressor so how important is uh, you know of course back in the day you had to have golden ears you had to have these golden ears to be able to master a record nowadays you've got all these computer programs and things that basically do a lot of your sort of hearing for you if that makes any sense like it tells uh, I you would disagree what's with going on i mean you know what i mean like <laughs> the plugins well, and stuff the... it says here's exactly what the db is yep. but you obviously still have to have good ears well to be able and, to do and, this. and there are a, a bunch of tools that now have artificial intelligence kind of incorporated in them. Um, I can't really say, you know, how successful are the, those are because I don't use those tools. I see. You know, I just, I have, I think that the listening experience that the engineer brings has a lot more to do with, you know, how they approach it. I think that some of those AI tools are used as a way of bringing expertise, you know, making it available to to people who are sort of starting out. But I think that you can, that, that the track at hand has a lot more individuality than the average of all the other similar tracks that, yeah. that may be out there. And, and I think that it's, a, you know, it's a, I'm, I have the luxury of, of, working for myself and so therefore you know i can spend as much time as i want on a song so uh i was reading the other day and i saw where you can an online i know you're you're just going to be appalled by this but there's some kind of online automatic <clears throat> excuse me mastering program that you could like upload your song to and it would automatically master it or normalize it or something yeah, like that does that, that just totally make your skin crawl not really. And I, I guess the reason why is because, you know, that is an automated service. It has all the intelligence of an automated service. I I have one friend in the business that, that believes that he's figured out the algorithm and it's just a, you know, a setup on a, on a plugin and you just, you push the audio through that and this is what you get out of it. It, it amuses me. I mean, the, the service I'm familiar with is one called Lander. And, you know, if you step back from it, it looks more like an acronym for left and right. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, okay, it's, it's stereo, you know. But uh, I've, I've had a couple of people sort of shove something through Lander and says, it's got to be better than this. And, and honestly, that's not real hard. I mean, you know, it's just a matter of, of, you know, picking the specific tools for the song that you're working on you know, relates to, you know, I, you know, if I'm working on a, an R&B thing or, you know, I may say, okay, well, this needs some kind of smoky tube action happening on the low end and, and I'll pick, you know, specific tools. I'll pick specific tools that relate to the, to the music and the, and the studios that that 
you know, music came out of. And, and it's like, you know, the AI kind of thing can't do that. I mean, they'll, they'll take your mix and they'll get it squashed into a, a dynamic range that's useful for, you know, playing in your car or giving back to the, you know, artist and, and say, here, you know, take drive around with this and let me know what's wrong with the mix, you know. Are but, you a big fan of um, the people you grew up listening to, like the Beatles and who, like, did you find out, like, who mastered the Abbey Road record and stuff like that? Or, or is that kind of, like, sort of obscure, like, nobody knows? I wouldn't say that nobody knows that, but, you know, I've, I actually you know, listen to a lot more jazz and fusion and, you know, back in the eighties when I was growing up than, than rock stuff. I was a little weird that way. And so, you know, I had to kind of go back and fill in the musical history of, of like what was going back on in the, in the seventies and eighties. You know, I can just imagine a record like that, you know, being so the pressure of such a huge record and then, not only did you have to mechanically, you know, all the stuff that they had to do to to master it on vinyl, but I mean, you know, like you've got this uh, very few tracks in these things that were maybe right. like eight tracks, maybe total. Right. And a few of them bounced here and there, you know, to the, the, have that in your hands and have the responsibility to make those records well, sound great. And And granted, I mean, at that time, mastering was a very different process. I mean, it was specifically tied to you know getting an accurate transfer of tape to disc right with low noise and all that you know and and yes there were some eq tools that would you would use but they were pretty broad and in fact you know when you're cutting a, a a vinyl record actually cutting the lacquer form that becomes the vinyl record i mean it's almost like a dance because there is no way to pause the right. the process from the start of the first song till you get to the end of the lock groove on the inside of the side and you have to perform all of the changes that you're going to do in mastering in real time wow. without automation right. at that time and you know there was a way of like okay as the song is fading out you would start to be setting up your equalizers for the next song that came in and then oh you would like gosh. have to get your you know, relative level of song to song changed in that half second between wow. one song and another. And then maybe by the time as the song is building, you would start to, to do the adjustments on your on your limiters and that sort of thing so wow. that they, you know, before the song really got big and, and started you know, leaning Hats into the compression. off to those people who did that. And, and, and it was, you know, and then on top of that, you know, you might have problematic S's and that kind of thing. So you'd have to run back to the cutter rack and you'd start, you know, adjusting high frequency limiter thresholds back there. And then you have to go back there and, you know, hit the button for the spiral in between the songs so that you'd have, you know, you'd mark that. And, And it was, it was a choreographed deal. And sometimes we needed to like call a guy in to, to, to help with the cut. And sometimes when we were like, you know, wanting to gig each other, we'd kind of go in there and just about the middle of the fourth song on the side, you'd, you know, shout something at the cutter head and that would physically put oh audio God, onto so the disc and, and they'd have which to start those over Which had to be so pristine and so sharp and, you well, know, yeah. I mean, it that was, were doing the cutting. I mean, those things had to be, and from what I understand, from what Rupert Neve was talking about is they were... Uh, susceptible to getting chips and little cracks in them so you had to make sure that they were 
uh, well, sure. Pristine, I mean, anything, clean anything and that sharp. would like get caught in there could could you know become you know like an artifact in well, there. And well, would, yeah. I mean, yeah. A, a piece of dust or something like that could could build up on the on the on the face of the stylus. You know, get caught in the groove and be dragged along, and that would you know that end would affect up, the sound. Wouldn't well, it? absolutely, yeah. it would make a noisy groove. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember Rupert Neve was saying that he could look at a record that was being cut, and just by the sheen, the way the light shined on it, you could tell that there was a, a chip in the in the stylus. Well, sometimes you could you could see that, yeah, yeah. if it was you know you in, see in it the in the grooves. Case. But you know, in, at the end of the cutting process, I mean, the the cutter head lifts up, and you crank the cutter head back to the side, and you've got this lacquer form, but you can't play it to check it. Right. Right. So all you could do at that point is take a microscope. And and look at the cleanliness of the grooves, and just sort of hope that you know sort of average it out. And the, hope the, that the, everything's like okay. Well, nothing got picked up and dragged along. And before you actually made your cut, you would inspect the lacquer blank for any kind of pinholes or something like that that could turn into a pop, because any one of those defects would, you know, translate through the whole plating process, pressing proce- process, yeah. and and that little pinhole that you missed would become a pop on you know a hundred thousand records <laughs> right no so, pressure there no pressure there so you know you, you you would there were the only way to check the the quality of the cut was really to get a test pressing and, and do that and, fairly and, quickly so that well, if you had to redo it you know you before just, you committed you know you you would never allow the pressing of a record to go ahead until you had actually listened to the quality of the pressing you know what it could be and and that would be a way of auditioning the stampers as well yeah so and i think it's interesting by talking about vinyl how uh right around 2020 when covid hit i think they had said that vinyl had outsold cds for the first time since the 1980s since like the probably the, the in, in units late too. 80s or mid 80s yeah. or something like that i mean i think that before that we even crossed over in terms of the dollar value yeah. of 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 records versus cds right I mean, right had, the we'd already exceeded that because you know cds weren't selling as much you know as a yeah. as a digital format people were more interested in streaming right but and vinyl was like a novelty that people could Hey, sure, look, you, it's a record. It's you can a real sell record. a record for twenty dollars, and nobody can make a copy of it. That's true. That's you know, very true, yeah. like you can sell a a CD if you're lucky. Yeah, you know? right. And and otherwise, people will be like pulling the stream down. You know the and from from some kind of streaming service, and it'll be close to the CD quality. And in fact, there are some high end streaming services like. Uh, title that are CD audio quality, huh. you know, but that's that said, I mean the the you know a, a, an album being sold for twenty bucks, yeah, you know, it, it can easily. I mean, you know, vinyl vinyl surpassed CDs, you know, even before two years ago, and I think that in terms of actual numbers of units sold, yeah, you're right, you know, about twenty, you know, two years Isn't ago. Isn't that there. crazy? So. How did you personally get started in what made you go toward mastering instead of some other like in the studio mixing or something like that or an audio, just a regular engineer? Well, um, I think that the biggest thing pulling me that way was the was the fact that, you know, mastering your 
you know, it, when I got into it was... When was that? When did you start? Okay, so... As a full-time mastering engineer. I started as a full-time mastering engineer in 1985. Wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's vinyl and <laughs> well, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I was the night cutter at a, a studio called Master Mix. That's right about the transition between vinyl and CDs. So you, well, you and, came and in... in fact, yeah, I mean, we... I worked for a studio called Master Mix, and it uh, was... Um, you know, I was I was the night started as the night cutter, but right when I got there, they had just bought this system for for editing digital audio and preparing the masters for CD manufacture. Which was, I guess, if uh, it used to be a big disc that they made this master disc, it was huge, and then they reduced it in size. No, is that, that right? No, I mean it was it was always a uh, a five inch disc. Really, but the uh, the masters that were used for cutting that disc were a uh, was basically a broadcast video cassette. Okay. Okay. So I mean, there was this broadcast video format called Umatic. Okay. Yeah. And three quarter inch, three quarter yeah. inch video, and and the early digital recording systems, you know, were recording. Two channels of digital audio, 44 kilohertz, 16-bit samples, onto this tape, and and the the capacity of a CD yeah. was 76 minutes, and and it cost millions of dollars to make a CD, you know, to press wow. them in a, in in clean room conditions like you would have in a wow. in a in a, a, a semiconductor manufacturing facility, and nobody right. thought for a moment that anybody would ever be able to copy these things right and so why put any kind of copy protection into the data so I see wow <laughs> you know, the, and you I, that was right when you came in in 85 that was just yeah, being implemented and and, and and so i had the privilege of of mastering remastering a lot of classic material that came out of the rca vaults and out of you know other record companies vaults that they were re-releasing on on CD, yeah. And in some cases, you know, I would have the uh, what was called an EQ'd copy, which was used for cassette manufacture and that kind of thing, as the master. And I would be framing that. In some cases, I had original masters, and I got to master the project again and learned a tremendous about amount from from being able to work on these projects that you know got a lot of play i mean the stuff that they wanted to release on cd were their good records yeah i remember in 1985 or six or something like that i was uh with some friends of mine we went into a pool hall and they had the first ever that i remember cd jukebox and i looked at it and i was like whoa this is cool and then I chose um, the Fleetwood Mac Rumors album, yeah. and I put my coins in there, and I played the, the first time I heard that record on, it's the first time I really ever heard a CD, really, that I knew yeah. that I was listening to a CD, especially in something like a jukebox or something like that. I could not believe the clarity and how good it sounded. Yeah, and, and there is a similar thing happening nowadays because you've got companies like hddtracks.com that are releasing high fidelity high resolution remasters of these classic records so you know i have a a copy of fleetwood max rumors that that is is based on the original masters 
and is sampled at 96 kilohertz and has 24-bit samples, and it's gorgeous. Wow. You, yeah, and, and, and likewise, I've got, you know, similar, uh, I've, I've purchased similar copies of, of like, you know, Beatles, you know, Sergeant Peppers, and you, and you can hear a level of detail wow. that was just, you know, lost, because you got to think that, that a lot of those uh, reissues onto CD being the early days of digital audio i mean the 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 designs of the audio analog to digital converters that all of that sound yeah, went through were pretty and all that stuff primitive was pretty, you know yeah. you know pretty primitive and noisy and and it's like if you had a chance to go back and retransfer those things i mean you can really get some beautiful sounding and 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 hear you know some a level of detail i mean one of my favorite projects is is listening back to uh, the Beach Boys, you know, Pet Sounds album. Right. And just, you know, what was going on in those studios and being able to get, get really deep into the sound in a way wow. that you never could before. That was all information that was there in the original Masters. It's still on the tape. It's still but on it that. But uh, it was on the tape, but it was, you know, covered up by noise on the vinyl. And, you know, it was kind of smeared and, and not well understood when the early transition to, to CD. But, you know, being able yeah. to go back and hear those masters again i mean it's it's like having the original master i mean think about when they were making those the quality or the lack of quality of the speakers and the systems that they were going to be played through car speakers and home stereos and things like that they didn't really have a whole very high bar to jump over you know back then they thought they did but but now you look at it today you know i I, yeah i think that that's kind of a uh, i think that they also got a lot of things right back at that time and and part of that is because you know the early audio formats were so constrained you have to really understand how to make a good recording in order to get it to go through the whole recording process right so so disc mastering engineer that was the first job they gave you you were you know cutting daily acetate references before there was such a thing as an audio cassette so that the producer could like you know, they were kind of akin to the dailies that you get from a shooting, you know, from a, a film movie, shoot or something, a film right, shoot yeah. or something like that. You know, they'd have these acetate dailies that the producer would take home to find out what the heck they got in the studio that day. And so the the first, you know, before they would even let you touch, you know, play and record on a tape machine, you spend a couple of years cutting acetates for oh, the that's for the kind of reverse engineering that was the first you know that was the entry point and then they move you up to tape operator and then you can move up to second engineer and then you move from second engineer to engineer but i mean it was without understanding that original stuff it would be harder to do the job that you're moving up toward you know and and knowing the physical limitations of what can happen you know the the frustrations of getting a good sound playback from a groove made you a better recording engineer when you got to work with the tape and understanding the the limitations of the tape made you a better mixing engineer and all of that stuff and from microphone to tape just the distortion that could happen and learning how to place mics and just all that important stuff well and just get your signal through a a mixing desk without distortion too was you know a good part of it so you you started out did you start out as a in the mastering field or did were you something what what got you into that well i I, frankly it's it's um probably because most of my listening as an audio engineer prior to that was in the stereo world you know i was you know learned my craft you know recording student recitals in a conservatory of 
of music up in Ohio and at, at a place called Oberlin College. And, and, you know, it wasn't an audio recording program. It was my work-study job. And so all of the listening I did there was put up microphones, get it to two channels of audio. You know, the, the larger recordings I was doing the, the, of ensembles and that sort of thing was mixing directly to two channels, live mixing. And so the whole multitrack thing was not something I had a lot of experience with. I did some multitrack mixing, but the, the way that you listen as, as um, to the overall sound as a mastering engineer yeah. is kind of a different way of listening from the focus that a tracking or a mixing engineer has on the individual element sound. I see, yeah, looking at the bigger the picture and then yeah, finding I mean, you're, you're, balance. Yeah, you're a lot yeah. more focused on the overall sound and how this is coming together. Yeah. So. And how, how much have, over the years, since they started doing it on computers, so mastering on computer, how, how I, like, say, since 1999 or 2000, early 2000s to now, how much has that changed, even even within the computer? Oh, tremendously. Programs and oh, oh, plugins tremendously. and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, I, you know, for one thing, I mean, as, you know, there was, in the early days of digital audio, SSL, which is a big English console manufacturer, right. published a pamphlet explaining why digital mixing was never going to happen because there was no way that they were going to be able to build the processors and have the instruction sets that could actually, you know, compute all of that math that was required. Well, I mean, we have, a, you know, yeah. a different alternative now. Right, you know, yeah. It's, and, and now I'm working on, you know, a workstation with, you know, one processor that, that you know, does all of the math and has, you know, time left over to do other stuff, you know. Wow. So it, it's... That's a little obscure, but that's okay. Yeah. So, how long would you say your process, like, say you've you've, you've got a project in, and you obviously do it song by song? How long would you spend on one song? Does it does it kind of have a general time, or does it depend on the song? Obviously. Well, the first set song takes the longest for sure. The first what? The first song takes the longest, of course, and that's yeah. because there the the process at hand is to decide, you know, how how does this song want to present you know and you're and you're kind of inventing the sound that will be carried over for the rest of the project yeah so after you've got your first song mastered then your task at hand is how do i make these other songs fit with that song but the first song you don't ha you know you're is is kind of like figuring your out first what, impression of the yeah, album, what right? planet do i want to land on okay, yeah. and then you know let's after i've got that decision made you know, then then the it's far easier and faster to make the other songs kind of relate to, yeah. you know, a sound that you've already established. How much um, input, input do you get from the producer if, like, if they say, hey, we see this as being kind of dry sound and we want this to be very organic and very dry, or do they just let you do your thing? Well, if the producer has a, uh, a mix that they've been kind of living with for a while— um, and been, you know, giving to the artist as, as a kind of a reference mix. I always want to hear that mix when I c come up with the mastering decisions, Yeah, you know, based on the... on The, the spread of the stereo you know, and how well, big it, it sounds. Just, just kind, kind of, of, you know, the, the other part of it is the mixes that I want to work on as a mastering engineer are have more dynamic range and, 
and less, uh, you know, kind of stereo bus effects than you would have uh, in a mix that you were like giving somebody to listen to in their car. And, you know, I keep going back to the car, but so much music yeah. is heard for the first time in the right. car, you know, that, that that's kind of a, a reasonable benchmark. But, you know, that mix that that's sort of all squished up and handed off as a reference is not particularly a good mix to master from. I see. Yeah. You know, I do want to know kind of what people have been listening to. Uh, and the fact that it's less compressed means that it's it's a lot of times not the way that they had that the the producer engineer had had a a sense of where the final sound would be and in fact you start backing off of compressors and that kind of thing that are on the on the stereo bus and the mix will tend to fall apart ah you know and so there's a there's kind of like this magic amount of squeeze that was sort of already part of the vision for the record i see yeah when they when they in the mix and I at least need to get back to that. Otherwise, it doesn't sound like the mix that they were working on. I see, yeah. You know, the other part of it is also, uh, you know, the artist and the producer and the engineer, I mean, they've been living with these songs and these sounds for months. You know, as a mastering engineer, you know, I'm probably working on the record for two or three days, you know, in order to do a, a decent job. And And who am I to decide in two or three days, you know, what that, record should sound like i yeah. mean i have to take the the creative direction from the producer and the engineer yeah. and the so you artist. take that into account and absolutely it's a matter of taste and a matter of like for instance if somebody came to you with a a record from the band train and you're going to make that sound huge and all that then what if the white stripes was the you know the next uh, that's going to sound totally absolutely. a totally different attitude and vibe it may sound crunchier and like smaller uh, and when I say smaller, I mean like less tracks, more crunt, more distortion, and not as not like a big ballad record, you know, like a big radio record, but more just depending on the artist and the and the vibe and the attitude. Well, it'll be a more yeah. I mean, every record is is its own sound, and and I mean, it is a useful thing to have a a really wide knowledge of of records that have gone on before because you know a very useful tool is just sort of say oh this sounds reminds me of this record from 1970 you know and right yeah. and be able to pull that up and and relate to those sounds so but, you master it in a way your, your style of mastering almost might kind of reflect the sound that they're trying to get from the record like if they're going for more of a 70s vibe on their actual mix and their sounds well, when and their songs yeah. then when you gets to the mastering process then It'd be sort of like you you take it from there and make it even sound more like something they would have mastered in 1976. Well, perhaps that, but you know, at at, at the very least, I mean, the you know every record that comes out is 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 coming out into the history of all the music that has gone on before, and whether you know that history well or not, I mean, you still have to make it relate to that history. Yeah, and, right. I think you're right. And and so it it's. <clears throat> To, to, you ignore that at your peril. Yeah, okay, yeah. I see, yeah. It's a good way to put it. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, that like, okay, so like in the 80s, you had a certain sound, you know, that, that 
everything was a little bit drier and a little bit, you know, com- uh, tighter. Then all of a sudden, when the 90s hit, I'm talking kind of country, like mostly right. in country music. In the 90s hit, then there was this more sort of ambient open air, especially when it comes to the drums, the sound of the drums. Sure. There was this ambient sound that sounded like the drums were sort of being recorded in a garage or something like that. That style sort of came along in the mid-90s. How did that change the way you mastered? Well, I mean, do you remember when people were taping wallets to drum heads? Sure. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. like the whole idea was do like, sometimes. don't don't make that drum head ring. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going to put sake, that in. You, you know, yeah, it's ring. Just like, yeah, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's... You know, you had the big change when people went over to pre-tuned snares, and and I mean, it's the, and the big room mics. It seemed like room mics when well, they started mixing. Room mics, room mics and, ruled. And, I mean, and, that was and like, there was a, a reverb program on the AMS RMX 16 that you know kind of was a backwards snare reverb or yeah. backwards reverb that that was, you know. I remember when the Chicago 17 record came out, and that was like, oh, my God. Oh, the God, reverse that, gate thing? You know, that, yeah, yeah, it was like, sh- oh, my, you know, that was just like, oh, what my. is that sound? And how did Humberto Gattaca get it? I mean, yeah. it was just, you know, and then it was like on all the records, you know. It was yeah. like, okay, it's this program on the AMS RMX 16, you know, it's like, and then, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, you've got kind of these, these signature sounds and effects that, that absolutely, you know, kind of date you know so a, a, a audio at its time but i mean it's just the so as technology marches forward yeah. i mean it's just like you know the the way that we're you know working is you know moving forward with it and yeah. it changes the sound so if hear. they mixed it that way and that that you got the final mix and that that was like that's their decision the way they wanted those drums to sound now it's your job to make that to enhance that or to make mm-hmm. it sound reasonable and to make it sound like well that's what they wanted yes yeah, yeah. did did that change um the way you listen to records the way you, you you mastered or anything like that well a lot of the work i was you know doing at that time was you know kind of tangential to to the pop country market i mean i was doing a whole lot of contemporary christian music and and there i mean they were wanting to specifically match the sounds of hit music in the in the hot 100 and so i mean there was a a whole group of of studios and and players that were you know playing on the big records but they were also you know coming in and and putting that trying to match those same you know hot selling you know sounds in in what was at the time kind of a a smaller, you know, music market. Yeah, the Christian genre. Yeah, sure. Trying to, yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of Christian records, and Dan Huff, our uh, producer that used to produce us, pr- right. produced a lot of Christian records too. And I can only imagine that he made those sound. Like oh, a absolutely. Pop His dad was an incredible music producer and and arranger. I mean, he he did these really beautiful sounding, you know, classical uh, orchestra. Where you have to ride out every instrument, well, like every oboe and cello. And, and, I mean, and he would go over to Abbey Road and record that stuff, you know, wow. in, in, you know in, with, with London Symphony and come back with his masters and, and mix it here. And, and, and they, you know, so, yeah, it was a, a, a niche market, but don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, the players and the producers and the engineers and the studios they were using, you know, could be the best in the country wow. and, and frequently were. Because there's know, big money in, in there, Christian music. Yeah, there has bet. been and still you is. Bet. Yeah, 
And, you know, I've, you know, that, that was just kind of the market that I got my early opportunities in. And, and it just, you know, I had some really fun, great, progressive rock records that kind of came through, you know, back in the, you know, early 90s at that time, too, that were just, you know, career makers for me. Are you keeping busy these days? Yes. I can yeah, certainly sure imagine there's so much, especially since COVID kind of, you know, came came and went. People are getting back into the studio and making more records. Well, even before that, I think that, you know, a musician's personality and, and the guy, the, the studio rats, I mean, they've it's a compulsion. It's not like they have any choice about whether or not they want to record. So you take them off of the road and what are they going to do? They're going to like write songs and they're going to record records. And so there was actually... A fair amount of creative stuff going wow. on. So you never slowed down. Yeah, I, I was I was really fortunate and able to to keep going. And in fact, wow. I you know hit a slump when people started going back out to tour the records that they've been working on for the previous two years. Right. You know, yeah. and so you know that slump seems to be over at this point, and we're you know burning it. And you work from home. You'd have your little studio there. I do have a studio in my house. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you know, nice. and 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 the spaces that we can get away with, you know, making you know records in don't have to be you know two million dollar facilities like you know you know in 1985 you couldn't you couldn't open a mix room unless you had you know three quarters of a million dollars for a mix desk and yeah. three hundred thousand dollars for a 24 track tape machine and, and then a place another, that you had to pay rent on uh, yeah absolutely i mean it was just there, there was it it cost so much money i mean you, you could not you know, run some of those places for less than a thousand dollars a day. So, and and from now, an artist standpoint, you couldn't record anything, even a demo, without right. and, money. And, and I tell you that that's one of the really exciting things about the new technology is that there's a lot of music that is getting made that would not have had the the breadth of appeal that to to have gotten made into records before. And and that you know, so you're hearing a lot more exciting, creative things, and people taking more risks because there's just not you know they they can be economically viable with much smaller audiences and and you know it it really stretches the dimension wow. you know of, of of what what records get get made wow you know in 1985 you know you needed to be you know pretty sure of you know 10,000 sales to break even on yeah you know you're in a small budget record so yeah and the labels had the money because they were selling all the their a artists would sell so much that they could almost afford to fund these new artists. You know? Yeah, yeah I, I don't understand the A&R side of, you know, the only part of the music business I don't understand is music business. You know, that's that's yeah. not where my head ever was. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of ways the, the record labels were actually acting as banks. Right, and they were just And they were just funding the, the creation of, of records and and, you know, tying up artists with you know commitments for a generation to yeah you know so (laughs) man i how much longer are you going to be doing this ah till i can't until you can't anymore you know so far you know you can't hear anymore well you know i just i think even i mean i hear differently but i can still hear and and that's just been one of the really great reliefs one of the cool things about being a mastering engineer is i get to pick how loud i listen 
And, you know, if you're a, a mix engineer or a tracking engineer, right. a lot of times, I mean, you are not in charge of where that volume knob the is The producer is somebody else. Like, Turn that up. You know, or you need to hear, you know, drums at their natural volume, you know, for four hours a day. I mean, that'll really, mm-hmm. you know, kill you. I mean, and, and, you know, for me, I've been able to listen at much more reasonable levels you know, for longer, and I think that my that's ears helped your have, longevity. You know, that's yeah. sure, absolutely has helped. That's your instrument, right there, your ears. Yeah, I can't, I can't get away with. It. I hear differently, but I still hear accurately. In some ways, I hear better, even though I'm certain that you know, with age, you know, the high end has has diminished. But that doesn't mean it's, uh, you know, I still know what good audio sounds like, and yeah. it's, it's, it's. There's certainly ways of compensating. Yeah. Well. Ken, it was so great talking to you, and I've wanted to have you on my podcast forever because you're one of my heroes. Well, Keach, thank you. I, you I mastered really the Lonely Grill it. record. I, I mean, man, I mastered like, the Lonely Grill record, and that was a fun record too. That sure was. You was know. there anything different about that when you when it came in front? I'll tell you that 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 record came. You know, I let's see, 1999. Nine. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so I would been in the business for 14 years at that point, and you know, had you know, you would think, okay, he's a pretty established. But then you get to work with Jeff Balding and Dan Huff. And, I mean, those guys were so picky about controlling the sound that that in order to please them and satisfy them as clients, I mean, it took my art to another level. Really? And absolutely. And, and Only because you knew who you were dealing with? Or well, was it no, they, no, were they not constantly at all. telling I mean, you just, stuff? No, not even that. I mean, one of the things that was... I remember about that record and Dan and Jeff specifically was they had very natural sounds in their mixes that had, you know, frequency content. I mean, you you think of like a human voice. Okay, well, this is, you know, it's basically a mid-range sound, but it's got some high-end air kind of stuff and you need to define the, the consonances, that kind of thing. But they've got, con, you know, spectral content from that sound that was, you know, the whole width of the, of the audio spectrum. Likewise with, with every instrument on the record. And so, you know, you put just a little taste of EQ into it and their mix just moves like crazy. Oh, wow. And, and I had not worked on audio that was that responsive before. I mean, it's like most of the projects I had worked on, I mean, people really cranked on equalizers and this sort of thing that, that, that defined each individual individual instrument and you had a lot more control but with that stuff i mean they had much more natural sounding mixes and and the balances just moved all over the place and it was a pretty frustrating record to work on right. but when they when we got it right it was beautiful wow you know and and that was a level of their art that demanded that i you know raise the level of my art wow. to, to to work with so yeah yeah that those that was like the golden age to me the golden age of well, it sure was a fun time audio and you know just yeah. what was going on because everything had kind of moved over to pro tools at that point i don't think right that that was the case i mean i remember those masters coming in on uh some weird eight track oh really you know that they mixed like on? Yeah. like it's sort of like it was like a dat that was like a different size dat. Oh, i don't wow. even remember what that format was i mean and all of that stuff you know had to be transferred you know it was mastered in the analog and digital domain and and you know so you know there would be some setup that was happening in the analog world and then there was more 
set up on the digital side kind of behind it in order to get through that. Wow. So, you know, doing a recall was uh, was a lot more arduous than, oh, yeah. you know, these days. So, Well, kudos to you, and um, thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, I sure enjoyed it. I hope you're mixing and, and uh, you know, mastering for many, many years to come. I would like that. Yeah. We'll look forward to hearing more of your, your masterpieces, as it were. Thank <laughs> you, Keach. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. See you. Bye.